thanks so much to Pod Plays Podcast, bringing great stories, epic songs, audio dramas that are a movie for your ears. Within each story, you'll discover new and original music by Nashville's top hit songwriters. Visit podplays.com to find the stories, the app, and links to follow Pod Plays on all your favorite social media sites. All right, so Doug. <laughs> All right, I'm about to I'm about to quit. Wow, oh boy, we were professional. This is the Marty Ray Project chats, and I'm Marty Ray, one of the hosts of this podcast. You might know me from a beard video, a prank call, a rap song turned acoustic cover, or hopefully one of my original albums. And I'm Chris Wallen. You might know me from. Where would they know me from again? You might know Chris from number one hit songs like Don't Blink by Kenny Chesney and Something to Be Proud of by Montgomery Gentry. Whether you know either one of us or not, I bet you're going to have fun here. Welcome to the project. Download, subscribe, and rate, whether you love it or not. Sound supplied by Roadcaster Pro. He's an award-winning screenwriter, producer, and director. He's owed all the credit for David Swimmer's success. That's Ross from Friends, who might not know. And he produced and wrote one of my and Michael Scott's favorite TV shows of all time, Entourage. Entourage. Welcome to the show, Doug Ellen. How are you? Thank you. Thank you. I should have mentioned your podcast as well. He has Victory, the podcast as well now. Please do. That's more important to me at this point. Don't please don't leave. It took us so long to. We've been trying for a year to get you on, and I appreciate you finally getting on here. Not really. Not really. Glad to be here. We start every show with a fast to... five. All right. We ask you five quick questions, and we try to get five quick answers, but they never really are. So it don't even matter if you really answer them. We just do this anyway. <laughs> All right. You ready? Segments. I like it. Yeah, yeah. we do say. It's like a radio show, you know? <laughs> Who's your favorite superhero? Uh, Aquaman. <laughs> I figured you'd say that. I'm not really a superhero guy, but I like him because he, he made me some money. So, <laughs> <laughs> what is the least sexy name you've ever heard? Doug. <laughs> really? <laughs> I had I had Marge and Bertha down here. Marge and Bertha. That's Marge. that was mine. Yeah. Uh, what movie would greatly would be greatly improved? If it was made into a musical. Oh, man, that's 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 tricky. I'm not a big musical guy, so that's tough to say. But uh, I don't know. I got to I, I got to come back to that one. I'm gonna I got pass. I got Highlander yes. and Mac and me. <laughs> Mac and me. <laughs> Mac and me. Remember that movie? Yeah. What a weird movie. That I don't was. Even know what that is. <laughs> that was that uh, that was that weird E.T. wannabe movie. With the weird age. Oh, really? It's like the Kmart ET. Yeah, that's really what it was. <laughs> What's a movie that scared you as a child? Uh, Halloween. Halloween. I had Leprechaun. Jaws. Jaws? Jaws freaked me out as a kid, actually. Really? I never oh, was yeah. scared of, of sharks. Man, mine was an exorcist. Re- I never watched yeah, exorcist. Oh, my God. Exorcist my my brother, when I was a kid... When it first came on, my brother hid in a dark corner and scared me. And they said I they said I screamed for like ten minutes. That's what you do sometimes on this show. That's true. Yeah, that's weird. Uh, Exorcist, great, great director. William Freakin directed that. That's a great movie. 
And uh, the last Fast Five was, are you a member of the Illuminati? I'm not. Not yet? I, at least I don't know that I am. Right. Okay. <laughs> Just trying to get that out of the way right off the bat. <clears throat> MK Ultra. So you you originally wanted to be a stand-up comedian, right? I don't, I don't know if I originally wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I, I came out to Hollywood. I had no idea what I was doing. I knew I didn't want to go to law school, which I went to Tulane in New Orleans, and I... You know, I had there was first of all, there was no film department there. And growing up, I had nobody in that business at all. So it was just kind of like a pipe dream. But as college was ending and I was planning on going to law school, I woke up one day and said, there's no way I'll ever make it through law school. So I called my parents and said, I'm going to Hollywood. And they said, for what? And I said, I'm going to be a stand up comic, which, uh, you know, my mother uh, was pretty surprised. So did you did you actually go to the stage? Oh yeah, yeah. I raised money for my first short film by uh doing stand up. I, I used to work at the mailroom in New Line Cinema and I handed out pamphlets to everybody in the place saying I'm gonna go do stand up. I need a hundred bucks to do this short film. Mike DeLuca was VP at the time, he's now an Oscar winning producer, but uh he gave me ten thousand dollars out of his own pocket to go make this short film, which actually Funny that you said David Schwimmer earlier, but David Schwimmer was in it. Johnny Silverman, Ernie Hudson, Helen Martin. It was like an eight-minute film, and that kind of led to everything, uh, you know, that has ever happened to me. Do you get a, a cut of all David Schwimmer's friends' money at this point? Like, or has <laughs> the sole reason he made it, or what? Uh, you know, it's funny because David... David auditioned for that first short film, and he said one line, and I told everybody that I knew that this guy was going to be a giant star. So that was probably three or four years before Friends. And, uh, you know, um, but no, I don't have anything to do with his success. He's been helpful to me. But and he was also he also came on Entourage, which was great. And we made another movie together. But uh, no, I have nothing to do with David's success or his money, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I mean, you do have something to do with it. He did actually. That was one of that was like one of the he wasn't known at the time he did that movie though right the first movie with you no no friends friends was on when he did that movie oh friends it was, was oh I didn't you know, know that yeah I yeah. thought that was friends was the friends. biggest show in the world at that time and you the, got the him short on. film but I don't think that did anything for his career he was already on the Wonder Years when he did my short film oh wow that's what I was talking about the the short film was friends on with, during yeah, the short yeah, film no. no. Okay. No, but I don't think I don't think my short film got him friends. He got that on his own. Well, we'll we'll, we'll be the judge of that. I say who's your short film. Uh, if you know a good lawyer, maybe I can get something. Yeah. Out. Well, you actually need a good lawyer for a lot, getting a lot of credit and a lot of money for a lot of things, actually, because of Entourage. Yeah. Uh, how long did yeah. you work in the mailroom at New Line Cinema? Like six weeks. Wow, that wasn't long. Not not long. I had a bad I had a bad firing too. I, I was right out of entourage. I actually used the scene in entourage, but I came, I came in in a bad mood after a late night poker game, and uh, I was pushing my mail cart because that's what I did. And one of the executives came storming out of her office, smashed into me with coffee, and and basically was like, "What the f- are you doing there?" Like as if I had done something, and I. I was like, what the f*** are you doing? And, and then I like looked around and the entire office was looking at me. I was like, I guess I'll go home now. But uh, so even when I did that short film, I still had some friends there. So they came to my show. I wasn't really in the mailroom anymore because I had been I had. Well, you could say I quit or got fired. It's really hard to say. But I knew it was time to leave after that happened. 
That sounds like every job I ever had. <laughs> Other than working for my dad. That was dad. the last real job. That was the last real job I've ever had. Well, thank God it happened because we wouldn't have an entourage if you still worked at the mailroom. I don't think. Yeah, right. Um, right not. Now, did you? So, how long? How long did you do stand up? Were you still actually doing stand up? I got. I did this short film, and it actually. I mean, it's pretty crazy looking back at it, but it, it got me an agent. Got people wanting me to uh, direct real movies, and uh, it got me into film school. So I, I, after it sold to Showtime, they aired it. I never did stand up again, which, you know, I have some regrets. We actually have Jeff Ross coming on the podcast next week, and I was talking to him about it. But uh, I loved stand up. I just didn't really like the lifestyle that it was gonna to to make it. Is really it's a tough tough road with late nights and, and empty bars and stuff. And, you know, part of me regrets that I didn't try to pursue it more, but I stopped doing it right after uh, I got into film school. You think you could have been a legend like Burt Kreischer if you uh, would have kept at it? You know, I never want to think what I could have been or not, but uh, I felt like it was a, a it, it was a more natural calling for me than writing. I'm not sure how I ended up sitting in a house by myself writing all the time, but uh, stand-up is one of the hardest things in the world, and to think whether I would have made it or not, I wouldn't even speculate. When you see guys like Jeff Ross, you know, some of the people we've had on the show, Jeff Ross, Bob Saget, Dice, I mean, they're they're amazing, but I'm sure they went through the the knocks that I didn't end up going through doing it. So, yeah, you really didn't have to pay much dues, did you? No, I paid a lot of dues, just not in stand up. I, I paid, was about like you, to be you, honest with you, you you, you worked for six weeks dues, in the mailroom, and uh, <laughs> I paid most of my dues. I paid most of my dues after. I mean, I had early success, and then a lot of kind of uh, things to overcome after. And again, it's no tragic story. I made some good money when I was young. But uh, after making two films that were, you know, independently made and released by studios around the world, I couldn't make one nickel for about three years. I mean, literally not a dime. So uh, it's it's again, it's not a tragic story. I had some money in the bank. But when you when you're 25 and think you've made it and at 28, you think your career's over. It's uh, it's not a great feeling. So and that happens to me all the time. Every time I wake up, I think, well, this is it. That's the truth. I'm like, well, career's over. You, uh, how long did you, how long did it take before you wrote your first script? Was that when you well, left the I wrote the my first script the last week of college, having no idea. Uh, I never took a screenwriting class. I had no idea what I was doing. And um, I just, I bought a screenwriting book and I wrote a script while I was still in college. So um, I actually, took that script when I got to LA and started, when I started meeting people, I started giving people that script and um, it, it got me some meetings. People thought I had a good ear for dialogue and thought that I needed to learn about story, which I, hopefully I have over the last 30 years, but I was kind of always, uh, you know, able to write how people speak pretty easily. Um, story, which is a key to screenplays was a little trickier, you know? So what was the book that you read? Oh, God, I'm, I'm, I think it was Adventures in the Screen Trade by William Goldman. You know, mm. it might have been. I don't know when they came out, but the books that I always read when I'm writing a script, Sid Field's got a book and Robert McKee has a book. So it was one of those three for sure. And was the first script you wrote, was it one of the ones that got made as a short film? 
So that script, which was legitimately all dialogue about my girlfriend and I in college, was what I when I was Steve Levinson, who produced Entourage and, and um, manages Mark Wahlberg and his partners with him. Um, he moved out a couple of years after me and started getting to the business. He read that script and what it's what made him want to represent me. But about five years later, uh, David Schwimmer on when after Friends hit, he got a big deal at Miramax. And we took that first script and we turned it into a story. So we sold it. Um, it became very different than those pages, but kept those characters because I think the same thing. David saw I had a good sense of dialogue and then we kind of figured out, but it never got made like most scripts. Uh, I mean, I've probably sold 40 scripts and like four of them have gotten made, I think. So it happens a lot. Did How long before you became... You got the job as the staff writer for Life with Bonnie, though. Did that come from well, the that short was movies? Ye- no, that was years later. So I, I made the short film, went to film school. I came out and I got hired to make a movie that was a $50,000 budget. It's called Fat Beach. We shot it in six days. The guy ran out of money. About a year later, I showed it to a, a, like scenes to a friend of mine. He said he could sell it. He went to a studio and they gave us another $100,000 and we finished it literally a year later. That came out from live entertainment. They released it on 400 screens and it still plays around the world. I was paid uh, 11,000 bucks for that, I think. Um, And then um, I was offered to do this movie, Kissing a Fool, which was again independent. And I got David Schwimmer to do it. We sold that movie to Universal. Um, which is a, a remarkable achievement to take an independent movie for a million two and sell it to Universal Studios. They released it on 2,200 screens, which again is unheard of for that kind of budget. The movie made about two and a half million dollars um, opening weekend, which is double the budget. Sounds kind of good to me. It wasn't good to the town. So, and nobody really talked about it that it was an independent film. It was kind of released as if it was a big studio movie. Now, Bonnie Hunt was in that movie and we liked each other and I was getting offered everything before that movie came out because people had seen it and thought it was good. When it came out and made no money, every offer I had was gone. There was nobody would hire me. Nobody would talk to me. It was literally right out of entourage. And I called Bonnie Hunt, who was in my movie and said, no one will hire me. Can I come work on your TV show? And she gave me a job, which I had never been in TV before. So I actually wrote the Entourage pilot while I was working on that show. Did you learn how to write for TV by being on that show? Is that how you learned to do that? To be honest, I didn't learn anything on the Bonnie Hunt show. Um, <laughs> Bonnie, who, who's Bonnie, who's great, but Bonnie writes everything herself. I'm not really sure what we were doing there. We were having long lunches, and I had – a guy named Chris Henchy who ended up working on Entourage with me. Um, we just used to sit and talk about ideas all day about other things because we weren't really involved in Bonnie's show. Um, but I learned how to write TV on Entourage. I mean, I wrote the pilot. It took about two years. And when HBO picked it up and said, OK, you're going to do seven more for season one, I went home and almost killed myself. because I was like, I have no idea what this show is or what. The next thing is, or how to, how to, you know, I had written about 15 movies. The idea of thinking about uh, how this thing could go one season, two seasons, three seasons was not even something I could comprehend. So um, fortunately, HBO, whatever they saw in me, they were willing me to, willing to let me to figure it out. And, and I think I did. But uh, 
I would I would just go day by day and learn. So I had absolutely no idea what I was doing when I started that show. What does it mean to be a staff writer? Like, what does that even mean? Like, you get no credit for for writing? Well, it depends. I mean, it depends. On Bonnie's show, it meant not that you don't get any credit. It meant you don't do anything. But when you have a staff on a TV show, it could mean anything from they'll give you a script to write. I mean, it's always going to go through the showrunner at the end of the day. They'll put their stamp on it. But ideas, you sit around like the three of you guys and go, oh, what if what if drama did this? What if Ari did that? And uh, so you're contributing in whatever way works for the person who's running the show. Mm, I see. Do they give you credit, though? Like if you do that, do you, does that, does that count as a credit for as a writer on everything or are you kind of like a ghostwriter? You'll only get you'll only get a credit if if they if they say, hey, you'll write this script. Episode three, that's yours. And you'll come up with an outline and they'll go write the script. And by the way. The script might completely change, but their name will stay on it. So it might not even be anywhere close to the thing they wrote by the time it's actually filmed, or it might be exactly that. So it's always it's always tricky in television to know who wrote what. But hopefully when you have a staff, everybody contributes in whatever way it is. Sometimes there are some people who are just there for jokes. There's the funny guy. Then there's other people that you have who are amazing with stories. So, you know, when you have a structural problem, they'll come up with it, you know? Right. So if you go to a, if you if you put that on a resume and you haven't done anything, is that going to impress somebody? If you, if you say I'm a staff writer for Entourage, if I was a if staff writer, yeah, would if it impress If you're a staff people? writer, yeah, if you're a writer on a hot show, it's it's a game changer for the moment. It'll certainly lead to your next job, but as soon as you know, as soon as you don't work for a year or two, then all of a sudden everybody forgets anything you've done in the past. So it's no no different than music. You guys know how it is. Yep. <laughs> It's a what are you doing now situation still, but it seemed yeah. like it would be different though in uh, in Hollywood. Like you, you did Entourage, and that was is that that's got to be one of the most successful HBO shows, right? Is it not? I mean, that's for other people to determine. I thought we did all right, you know, but uh, they certainly they didn't they didn't make my next show, which in my mind they were out of their f-ing minds. But they they screwed me over on my next show after that. What was the next show? Next show was a show called 40 with Michael Imperioli from The Sopranos, Eddie Burns, and Michael Rappaport. And uh, we shot the pilot. I also produced a show with Spike Lee and John Ridley, who won an Oscar for 12 Years a Slave. That was loosely based on Mike Tyson. Um, They also didn't go forward with that show. So um, there is no, oh, you did this yesterday. They decide on a day-by-day basis, and new people come in. And, you know, I think the world now, like you guys know, you can go do your own. Shit. It really doesn't matter what they have to say. You know, you want to do a podcast, you do a podcast. Seven years ago, you couldn't do that. You want to make a film, you make a film. I mean, the, the first sh- short film I made when I was 21 took me a year. It would take me a couple of hours now on an iPhone and cost one fortieth of what it cost then. Um, so it's a different world now. But um, there's very little. Uh, it's like anything else. There's very little loyalty in this business and you guys know in the music business too you can have a great record but if you want to do something slightly different you know usually the label will be like well we want the same that we know that you're good at so that's been kind of the same thing for me and now we know as in the music business you release your own stuff and it really doesn't matter what the label has to say for the most part right I, i think that um that music and 
and film has has become more liquid. Creativity has become more liquid. You, it used to, like when I first started out in the music business, it was that's I pushed everything else away except for that, except for music, and that's I think that's probably how I did what I did back then. But now you have to you have to be creative and you have, you have to go out and do different things and, uh, and, and expand. And that's just how it yeah. is today, you know, yeah, but, but they all kind of blend into the same thing. Creative. I mean, not that, you know, uh, not that I could do music, which I wish I could, but you know, I, I always tried to do as much stuff as I could writing, directing, producing, even acting, bad acting, whatever. But, uh, you know, I think the, the difference now is, is that, you really can go create stuff on your own and get it out there, whether it's music or film or anything. Um, you know, 20, 20 years ago, if you had a great song, you really had to hope the right person heard it and the right person liked it. Now you can get the word out there, which obviously we've seen with whoever, Justin Bieber, or et cetera, you know, be able to kind of go around the system and just show how talented they are and just make it anyway. So, yeah. How do you do that in, uh, in script writing? You just make it. Well, it I, think, I think you I think you can film something and you can put it anywhere. I mean, look at what these look at what these uh, social media stars do. They make their little sketches. And, you know, now some of them are getting to be stars of studio movies. But as the Internet continues to get faster and this technology continues to get cheaper, there's no reason that I mean, I don't even know what the music labels will be. Like, why do artists need the music labels to release their stuff? They just need their their fans to spread the word out. Similar to the podcast. I mean, the podcast we're doing, which, you know, we, I think uh, we started seven, eight months ago. Um, we didn't have it. We didn't spend any money on marketing or advertising. We had our Instagrams and we started hoping our fans would come to it and word of mouth would grow. And I think our first episode did 600 downloads and now we just crossed three million, three million. So, you know, it's nice. uh, people can decide for themselves what they like. And I don't have to go, you know, ask HBO if they would be interested in this, you know. So that's that's I think it's a nice difference. I think there's a really great time for talent in any in any avenue, you know, to be able to get out and do stuff. So, yeah. In the middle of every show, we like to do a little segment called uh, Why Would They Do That, Doug? All right. In this one, if you've ever, have you ever found yourself sitting in your home saying, I sure wish this house smelled like grandma's fried chicken and biscuits? All the time. Well, your answer has arrived in the form of Kentucky Fried Chicken scented candles, KFC candles. Ben, you got a picture of that so Doug can enjoy that? Man. He needs to get one of those for his <laughs> mansion. All, way, it has, it's just, all it is is just packed. It's just made out of MSG. I thought it was chicken grease. That's all it is. <laughs> it's just a chicken, just chicken grease, grease and MSG, and yeah. it just smells like. Great idea. What do you think, Doug? Can we send you one of these for being on the show? Please. please 11 herbs please. and candles. Will you, uh, if anybody ever excellent. asks about it, will you tell them that uh, the Marty Ray Project chat sent it to you? I will. I will for sure. I'm going to find that. <laughs> you, went to the, uh, you went to the American Film Institute, and yeah. somebody, you, you know, I think you mentioned him earlier, Mike DeLuca, right? He funded your first Yeah, well, he was film. from New Line, yeah. What? Was Mike? Did, did you meet Mike DeLuca because of American Film Institute? No. Or is I, he? He got you I, in there. That's how. That's what it was. Because he the, funded the, your short film. The short film that he funded got me into the American Film Institute. Yeah. Now, when did you actually learn something 
going to school. I always ask people this. Jared over here went to uh, Full Sail Full Sail University, and I said, did you actually learn something while there? He says he did, but mo- a lot of people say, no, I actually learned when I started actually making projects. Now, did you learn in, fi- in the school, or did you learn when you started doing things? Well, what was good about AFI is that you were actually doing it. So they, they let you go make films. And there were some incredibly, I mean, people that I've worked with for 20 years, I met at that school. So um, I was really one of the younger people at that school. Most of the people who went to AFI were like professionals. So they would come back to hone their craft. So I met some amazing cinematographers, editors, uh, production designers, etc. cetera. So, um, you know, Again, did I learn things? I'm not a I'm not a class kind of guy. So being in class was not where I learned. But when they let us go out and make a film, that's where I learned and from the people that I met there. So, right. That's kind of, that's how I learned, too. It's if it ain't hands on, I ain't really taking it in too much, too, too yeah. often. I got to be real interested in it. Otherwise, now was uh did you say Fat Beach was the first film out of school? Uh, first, yeah, I did. A, I did another short film out of school, and that got me Fat Beach. Yeah, and you said that's the worst movie of all time. Where can we watch it? <laughs> I mean, you can watch it anywhere. I didn't say it's the worst movie of all time, but it's definitely not. It's definitely not something I I tell people that they go sh- should go see. But interesting bit of knowledge nobody knows. Second unit director on Fat Beach was Darren Aronofsky, who's no you know considered one of the world's greatest directors. So he was a friend of mine from AFI. And like I said, I worked with a lot of people from AFI after I came out. But I think I was the first person out of that class. And we had great people. Scott Silver, who's, you know, wrote The Joker and Eight Mile and Mark Waters, who's directed a bunch of great movies and Todd Field, who's Academy Award nominated. But I was uh, less than three months out of film school and got offered I would have done anything that I was offered to do anything. But again, like I said, they paid me about 15 grand. I rewrote this script and we we shot over a year in about 11 days. It still plays on Showtime. Complex Magazine did a 20 year retrospective on it. Chris Rock used to make fun of it in his stand up <laughs> act, which was, you know, again, for That's me, all it was was like all it was was a chance to get on a set with well, people yeah. actually giving me money, even though it was not a lot of money. But, uh, you know, when you get out of film school, if somebody is willing to let you do anything with film, you know, you'll do it. So uh, but not not the worst movie ever made, but it's well, that was not a something quote you from need you. to run out and see. I'll quote it. I, I, I saw yeah. that quote online and it said you said it's probably the worst film ever. That's from your lips, <laughs> not mine. Yeah, no, I don't. I, I don't know if I said that. I mean, I actually we had some good actors in that. And uh Again, it's not something you need to run out and see, but uh, it's lasted for 20 years for a reason. There was some funny dialogue and some good actors in it, but it's certainly no masterpiece by any stretch of the imagination, you know? Well, I didn't want to watch it until after the show to see what you're yeah, real you don't need to. You don't need to watch it. You I'm, don't watching need to watch it. <laughs> I'm, I'm watching it today. That's our homework when we go home tonight. We're all watching it. We're probably going to do it at the end of this podcast after you get off. We'll just- but also, by the way, like my, my great music supervisor, it's funny how careers are. My, my friend, Scott Venner, who is my ex-wife's friend from college, who I hired, is now like, you know, become a star. He's got a podcast with Pharrell. He's in that movie as well as an actor, because that's how that's how little we knew about what our futures were going to be at that point. So, hmm. boy, boy, what was it like when you sold the, the first million plus script? Did you did you sit back and go, man, I made it now. I don't need to do anything else. Oh, you know what? Every success I've had for like about five minutes, I sit there and and I've made it. And then you wake up the next day and realize what the battles are going to be next. And, 
you know, I, I mean, finance, finances obviously are a great thing, but you know, you, you want to, you want to do things on a daily basis that make you happy and feel good. And you want to get through all of the, um, but obviously when I've sold scripts, it's been an amazing feeling, but you know, a day and a half later, when you're sitting around and you can't get it made or you got executives telling you what they hate about it, you know, you, you forget about the nice money part and you get to the part of like, I really want to go make something on a daily basis and I don't want to sit around and be taking notes from uh, executives all day. So um, it's there's a, there's always an up and down in this business. And, uh, you know, I, I say often since you guys are in the music business, it's like it's not like I can grab a guitar, sing a song and put it on when you want to make a movie. You need money. You need a lot of people to contribute. It's a very collaborative process and uh, you need a lot of things to go right. You know, well, the first thing that everybody says, too, is, yeah, you were talking about this a little bit that, you know, if you have some success on something, the first thing they say is, what do you got coming out next? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like, a, well, it's still, it's still on the charts. Can I just well, bask well, in that parents. for a second? Yeah, that's <laughs> my like, parents. I mean, I, I sold my first script eighteen months out of college, I think, and uh, you know, was paid a good amount of money, you know, and uh, I called my parents, and they're like, "All right, what else is in the hopper?" And I'm like, "I don't understand." <laughs> yeah. Like my my brother is a lawyer. And I sold this script for more than he's going to make this year. But the truth is they were right because this business, like you guys know, is you can all of a sudden make a lot of money and then all of a sudden make no money. Yep. So it's kind of really finding a way to make it as consistent as possible. And it's a long road. So, you know, like if you make a million dollars in 19, uh, 1991, it's not going to help you much in 2021 if you haven't made any more after that, you know? Well, no, I don't know what it's like to make a million dollars like you and Chris do. <laughs> but, uh, you know, well, you, you two also, rich boys talk amongst li- each other now. <laughs> you two rich boys, you go also, ahead. Well, you also live in Nashville, so you didn't, you know, you sell a script for a million dollars in Los Angeles, you pay 55% taxes, you pay 10% to your agent, you pay 5% to your lawyer, and then you give your ex-wife half. So basically, well, you're well, well, it's the same thing in the music business, bucks. except it's the publisher. You, you give, you know, your yeah. publisher has 50, 50% of the publishing, you pay, you know, uh, I think it was 40% tax, and so it's like, by the time you're done, it isn't right. as impressive as what you think. Yeah. And, and by the way, and then you get into situations, I did sell a script for close to a million dollars. And then three years later, when I hadn't made a dime and I walk into HBO with my, my hat in my hands, I was paid $50,000 to write the entourage pilot. And that took over a year and a half for them to say, okay, to when you take $50,000 and take half out for taxes yeah. and give 10% to your yeah. agent and 5% to your lawyer. I was working for less than minimum wage for HBO for a year and a half. And I'm not joking. You know? Yeah. Well, that was a, that was a, a risk that paid off though. Royally. You got to do it, you know, right. especially at the time HBO was such a, you know, such a palace that you just, you keep going until they tell you, to, you know, not to come around anymore. So that, that was, that series was cast really well. Like the cast was, um, I, I thought you couldn't get any better casting than that because yeah. they were uh, a lot of those guys were so believable in that role. You know, there's there's yeah. some some things that you watch and you're like, oh, that's an actor just doing that. But that that specific one was very very believable in the in yeah the people. That I mean, we it. took a we took a long time to cast it, and it was very important to me. I was you know essentially 
the show, as everyone knows, is inspired by Mark's life. But the first thing I said to him is, is like, I got to make it people I know, not who you know. And I, I needed to find four New Yorkers that felt like guys that I would have been boys with in high school. Jeremy was a different story. I wrote him into my first outline, Jeremy Piven playing the agent before I even know who the agent was going to be. So, but those four guys, you know, it took uh, almost a year to find all of them. So I only knew when I started watching Entourage, I didn't watch it when it was live on air. Like I I wasn't, I didn't have HBO at the time, but I watched it years later. And when I started watching it, I binged watched. I believe within a month, I watched the entirety of the show. And at the end, I was like, gum." But the only guy I knew on there before uh, watching that was Jeremy Piven. He yeah. was the only one. And uh, so, but yeah. those other guys, then I saw, um, who, who's the, 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 the main star? Adrian something, ain't it? Yeah, Adrian Grenier, yeah. Yeah, he. I saw a video of him and Matt Damon, and I, it was fake. I, I'm pretty sure it was fake. But from Matt Damon was chewing him out. Yeah, that's from the show. I wrote that. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's that's totally what I'm saying. fake. I, I saw that, and I was like, this is uh, – because people thought that was real. Do you remember – did you see this? Mm-mm. You didn't see, you didn't see this. Yeah. It, was, it was Matt Damon. People thought this was real on, on YouTube for a long time. Yeah, it was a separate – it was a separate thing that we did, like, as a – you know, listen, the whole show, especially season one, a lot of people thought it was a documentary. A lot of people didn't know it was scripted because they'd never seen any of these guys. So, uh, you know, that was the attempt to make it feel as realistic as possible. And the thing we did with Matt Damon is I just I wrote a thing and we shot it and released it as if it was a, a fight they had on the set. It was completely fake, obviously. And, uh, you know, but it was playing into the same thing that we always did on the show. Now, you said it's a, it's a story about Mark Wahlberg's life. You wrote the pilot about Mark Wahlberg, his life. How did that? How did that happen? If that's, I didn't. I actually didn't know that it was about Mark Wahlberg's life. So it, it's Mark came to me and said, "I want to do a show about my friends and Hollywood." I said, "I need to make it people I know." That's why I moved them and made them New Yorkers and not Boston. So basically, I used elements of Mark's life that worked and elements of my life that worked. And Mark was great enough to, to let me have the freedom to do what I want. But essentially, by the end of the day, it became more about my experiences through the idea of a movie star like Mark. And, you know, we looked for, a, when we were casting, we looked for a Mark type, which, you know, there's not a lot out there and we couldn't find that. So when we found Adrian, that also shifted it in a slightly different direction as well. When, does, does there not a list anywhere of HBO's most successful shows. I don't I've not looked this up, but I'm sure Sopranos is up there and The Wire's up there, but I would have thought Entourage was right up there with the top shows. But you didn't I mean, listen, I don't I don't know how success is measured, so I um but, you know, there's well, lists all ratings. the time. There's lists that there's lists uh yeah, I don't rate ratings I I couldn't tell you. I mean, ratings obviously Game of Thrones is probably the most popular show HBO's had I ratings wise. That. But yeah. but but I, I I don't know. I don't know about that. You know, when we came out, ratings changed cuz TiVo and all of that stuff. So it's very different than it was when The Sopranos was live on the air, which was huge. And there also weren't 400 other channels also. But I think we were one of their more successful shows. I think uh we're one of their more lasting shows, but that's for, you know, individuals to determine, you know. Well, I'm sure that was in your ear all the time, though. When you're when you're writing for a show and you're trying to get a new season picked up, there's, I'm sure that's what they're talking about. Is it not? 
Are they not like, not hey. Not really. H- no, HBO was never about, uh, we never discussed ratings. I mean, they were always supportive and kept going. I mean, you know, we were nominated for Emmys and Golden Globes every year. I think that was more interesting to them than debating what the ratings are. But I, I don't know. When it when the when when it, when the whole show ended, did they come to you and say, "Okay, this is the last season," or did you say, "All right, we're going to make one more season and end it"? How did that they go? They said down? it's the last season. They said it's the last season. They didn't give you a reason. And our, well, I think there were new people at HBO, and and what happens anywhere else? They wanted new stuff that they they could be responsible for and credited for. When we were off, we were definitely their highest rated thirty minute show. Um, but they wanted to go do other things. So um, that's what they did. And then Warner Brothers came in and said, let's make a movie. So we made a movie. Would you like for it to still be going on right now if, if they would have never ended it? Or would you have actually ended it at some uh, point? I mean, you know, it's hard for me to say I would have ever ended it because every year I was like, okay, I've had enough because I really did work uh, hard on it. But, um, you know, it's it's always tricky to keep coming up with stories. You know, four guys in their 30s living together, is uh, it gets harder by the week to come up with new things that they can do. Right. But, uh, yeah, I probably would have kept going. I mean, that was a nice paycheck, and I enjoyed everyone that I worked with, so we probably would have kept it going. And the guys now, I mean, with the podcast, they, you know, most of them really want to do it again, so we'll see. You know, I think uh, the podcast is growing so fast that I'm sure HBO is hearing about it, and, you know, if they come to us and say they want to do something else, we'll talk about it. That'd be great. A, a reboot. Yeah. Well, not really a reboot, just a, a restart because it wouldn't be different yeah. actors. Yeah, no. I asked you this on Clubhouse, uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask it again for my audience. Um, how does it feel to know that you sparked the ideas for Aquaman, Narcos, Ford versus Ferrari, and Great Gatsby <laughs> from the Entourage storyline? <laughs> You know, I mean, I think it's funny. The Entertainment Weekly just came out with an article like two days ago that said, uh, you know, uh, Hollywood is stealing Vincent Chase's uh, career. I, I don't think I sparked any of those ideas. I think uh, I think they're just good ideas. You know, I read the book Killing Pablo and said, oh, let's put Vincent in, in a Pablo Escobar movie. So I don't really think that anything was actually sparked from it. But I think it's funny that everything that we did do ended up becoming a movie later. But you didn't think that Aquaman was a good idea. I you, did not. You thought it was a <laughs> bad James idea. Cameron That's why you chose it. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, but, but, but you guys asked about superheroes. I mean, superhero in 2003, they weren't, they weren't making superhero movies. They were really out of favor. And I think uh, they came back, and that's pretty much all anyone wants to see anymore. I don't get it, even though some of the best movies have been made. They're incredible filmmakers, but I don't know how many times I could watch, you know, oh, this guy got his special powers doing this, and this guy got his special powers doing that. So, But people love it. But it's not, it's not my thing. It never has been. Well, I appreciated Aquaman because it was it was it was a different thing besides like the eleventh Superman. Yeah, you know, yeah, they yeah. keep doing how many Batman and Supermans can they keep doing, and then Aquaman was, and Spider Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, those and, those are big sellers. So. Yeah, I know, but it it just seems like it's just over and over. It's like it, you know, and and Aquaman was just something different. You know. I used to love yeah. uh, superhero movies. Uh, any superhero movie, I used to love whatever it was. I was happy they were making it. Even how Spider Man. A lot, a lot of people are. Yeah, but th- but now I, I don't watch them anymore. I, they don't they don't interest me anymore. But uh, I will say that it's shocking that Doug. You, you never you're saying you never like superheroes as a kid or nothing. Not not that I don't like them. I've seen all of them. I just I, no, like, I'm I saying was as never a child. Like a, a, as a child, did you actually read comic, comic books book or anything? Kid. 
I was not a comic book guy. And uh, I, of course, I saw all the Supermans and Spider-Mans and, you know, but th those weren't movies that excited me. Movies that excited me as a kid were movies like Airplane and Mel Brooks and Woody Allen <laughs> yeah. and, and Martin Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola. Those were the movies that I got excited by. And, and TV when I was watching Cheers and Taxi and Mary Tyler Moore and All in the Family. Um, At again, eight years old, you're I, watching. I like superhero movies, but I've never been the guy like with the Star Wars Darth Vader lightsaber right, or something right. like that. That's just never been my thing. I'm more of a I like dialogue and I like characters more than I like action and special effects. But it's not a knock on it. It's just what I prefer. It's just shocking to hear that you're saying eight years old now. I, I think I'm am I older than you? I'm not older than you. Uh, I'm 53 last week. Son of a gun. I look older. I look as old as him, at least. I'm only 38, believe it or not. <laughs> That's the truth. Everybody laughs. That's actually the truth. I, well, first of all, I, I can't even see you. You got a giant beard. You could look 12. That's, yeah. that's true. <laughs> I'm 38 years old. And every time I, I tell people that, they for, laugh. It's like a stand-up joke. I didn't shave for three months, and we had Mike Tyson jumped on the podcast on a video thing, and he sees me. He's like, Doug, man, we got old. And I was like, no, Mike, it's just the beard and walked into the office and everyone was like oh you look 18 now so you know i got a little gray too if you let the beard grow you're gonna look a lot older but that's true well you still you don't look you don't look 50 what was you 58 what'd you say 53 53 i'm so sorry <laughs> yeah. i'm so sorry what'd you say you were 73 was that what it <laughs> you're in the 80s man. Way, it's coming man it's coming 53 <laughs> doesn't make sense to me i still feel 30 so i gotta know this though at eight years old, what are you watching? Is Tell me what you're watching, what you're into. Because you didn't sit at eight years old and go, you know, I really like dialogue. He's like, I really, I'm really into Cheers. I'm really, I'm really into dialogue. Frazier's my favorite character. Well, I'm, try, I'm trying to, you know, let's see. I mean, eight years old is tough for me well, to I'm just think talking, about. You don't have to be I, exactly eight. I'm just talking about as a child. No, no, I, I know. But I'm thinking like when I was in camp at 11 years old, because that I can remember. I can remember when I saw Airplane when I was 11 years old. Wow. I can remember watching Mel Brooks comedies when I was a kid. Again, I've seen Christopher Reeve and Superman, Marlon Brando a thousand times, but the movies that stay with me, The In-Laws when I was a child, Peter Falk and Alan Arkin, I don't have any memories of being excited by superheroes. So, um, so Batman wow. One comes out with Michael Keaton. You're not excited at that time. That that, that was, that's one of the most exciting moments of my life. That and Ninja no. Turtles One as a movie when I was a boy. Again, I'm again I'm not saying like I didn't love it. <laughs> no, I wasn't. It wasn't. I'm more excited by Michael Keaton in Night Shift, which I saw oh, 150 oh, times. Yeah. I'm titling um, this podcast, Doug Ellen Hates Superhero Movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You see, like, Scor see, Scorsese got in trouble because he said they're not really films. I don't, that's not my point at all. I think the filmmaking and the special effects, it's its mind-boggling, the art, artistry that goes into this stuff. And by the way, great screenwriting like Scott Silver did on The Joker. But it's just, it's not the things that get me excited and it's not the things that I grew up dreaming about. I never dreamt, God, I hope I can make a superhero movie one day or when, when the new Star Wars comes out, I don't go, I can't wait to go see that. But like Raiders of the Lost Ark, that, that like when I was a kid, E.T., um, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Those were the things that excited me. And I think, again, I think a lot of these superhero movies now do have a lot of character in them, but characters what excited me, yeah, even as a kid. And stand-up comedy. When I was, 
I'm just trying to think of my age, but watching Richard Pryor growing up and and George Carlin and Eddie Murphy and Dennis Miller a little later in my life, those those were the things that I obsessed over, not Superman. You know, it just wasn't right. Well, we'll get off that subject because it's a little touchy for you. <laughs> You're very upset see. about it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can see it's a little touchy. <laughs> I do. I love Taylor Swift, though. Is that okay in Nashville? That's fine. I get a lot of heat when I say that. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know who you're supposed to love or not in Nashville. Um, I I own this. I own the Entourage film on Vudu, so okay. you owe me a candle or something. Um, <laughs> no, the. Uh, why do you think the film didn't go off as well as the, as the show did? It didn't seem like it took off as well. I, you know, I mean, when you release a movie, it's a whole other animal. And, and the tragedy of it is I have the test scores from Warner Brothers sitting right over here. The president said you'll frame this because you'll never have a better test score. Mm. The reality is, is it was a show about five guys and there wasn't a movie star in it. And, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, Sex and the City did this, Sex and the City. Sex and the City was a romantic comedy. Sarah Jessica Parker was a movie star. Right. And it was a different thing. So what I was saying is the tragedy is 2021, if we waited four years, the movie would have come out on HBO Max and it would have been wildly successful. But when you stick a movie out in the theaters for a weekend, you got one weekend and you know, Entourage was still more of a niche audience that clearly appealed to men more than women and was also, you know, a show that guys liked watching at their house with their buddies. We had groups that would get together, but we also hit the Me Too movement right in the face. And the show that was the New York Times called the best show on TV in 2003 was all of a sudden this misogynistic boys club. And we know what the PC culture kind of was shift was happening. And I think Entourage was a product of that. Again, the movie was, if you like the show, you like the movie. Nobody will convince me anything otherwise. And as I see now, the media can really start a narrative and they can all jump on the bandwagon. And definitely Entourage was part of that bandwagon. And again, I'm not even, I, I wouldn't even waste my energy debating good or bad, like it or not. I could give it. I never wanted it to be a movie. It's a television show. It should have stayed in the in, on television. I, I really didn't want to make the movie when it was happening. But as I said, HBO decided they were done with us. And then Warner Brothers came in and, and I was reluctant to do it. But Mark talked me into it for good reasons and said it would lead to a lot of good things. And the truth is, the world is shifting again. You know, we, we all want there to be equality for all and we want people to be kinder and gentler but we also want people to be able to do their art and do their creativity right and entourage which was getting a bad rap for a couple of years that's completely turned with the podcast all, all i'm hearing now is positivity from the the newspapers from the fans and everybody else but you know it shouldn't have been a movie it was a television show that should have stayed a television show you know right well, I liked the movie. I thought it was good Thank after watching you. the show. Now, would I have liked the movie if I didn't if I didn't become a fan of the show? I don't know. I don't know if I would. I don't yeah. know if I'd ever well, watch it. I mean, that's you know, that's 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 obviously always a thing. But uh, like I said, we you know they they do exit polls when you walk out of the theater. Hey, what'd you think of the movie? And we were the highest testing movie of the weekend from the people who came out of the theater. So Look you know, you. Uh, the the critics, the Richard Roper jerk offs of the world, it's irrelevant to me what they think. You know. Mm. 
I like that. That's going to be in the tagline of this show, too. Richard Roper jerk-off. Tag it. Richard, Ro- Richard, yeah. Richard, Ro- Richard Roper is a jerk-off. And since he was on Entourage and got a paycheck from me, I don't even think his opinion is maybe like a little like skewered. Like I don't think he should really be able to comment after that. But anyway, I don't even know if he still works, but... Yeah, he does. F- Richard Roper and all the other television <laughs> critics. And music, and music critics, by the way. There's nothing I hate more than critics, you know, who do nothing with their lives right. except for criticize other people. Like, And I think hey, the good news is here, here. that's going away. Like, it's, it, 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 it's like, you know, we're losing the ability to have them control what kind of stuff they want to see. And I think that is the great thing about the podcasts and being able to make your music and put it online. And as the internet gets faster, people are going to be able to put movies online and the audience will go right around schmucks like Richard Roper, et cetera, you know? So we should have anyway, just, we should, we should have just talked about Richard Roper this whole show. I really, I don't like <laughs> the guy at all. This is good. Yeah, I don't, I don't like him. So. <laughs> um, so we're ending now, but I want to, before we go, I want to talk about your podcast. What happens on it? I haven't heard, I haven't heard your podcast yet. Well, that's criminal. I mean, I know. you better down, you better download 60 of them now because every download counts. But, uh, you know, we we obviously it's Kevin Dillon who played Johnny Drama. It's Kevin Connolly who played Eric on the show. And we bring in lots of people who've been on the show. But we also bring out lots of other people from Jordan Belfort, the Wolf of Wall Street, to Charlie Sheen, who was on last week, to Andrew Whitworth from the Rams. Um, so, you know, it's. 30 years of our combined experiences in this town and in our life with an entourage basis. And it's really like just hanging out with your best friends for a couple hours a day or a week, whatever it is. So, and it's been doing great. And like I said, been completely organic and, and word of mouth that's been spreading. And it's really been, uh, been a great thing since the pandemic, which I'm supposed to be doing this show called day ones in London. That's uh, loosely based on the life of Thierry Henry, who's a famous football star in, in Europe. And um, when the pandemic hit, it was like, okay, what now? And we started doing this, and it's you know, it's been great. So, it's awesome. Victory the podcast, it's right there. Check it out, everybody in Nashville, please. It's at Victory the podcast everywhere, right? Or just Instagram? Victory the pod, yeah, Victory the pod. No, it's everywhere. All the all the podcast platforms. No, I mean, of course it's on the podcast. I'm talking about y'all have a YouTube channel, things like that, or just Instagram. You know what? Uh, I think there's a YouTube channel, but we haven't gotten it up and running yet. But we're about to release uh, episodes on a new app called Ficto. So we're doing uh, 10 minute um, episodes. They'll be very cool, which should be uh, should be out in a couple of weeks. How long are your episodes typically? About an hour. About an hour. And you release weekly, right? Uh, Two a week, usually. Sometimes one, but usually two a week, Wednesdays and Fridays. Nice. And next week, you know, so we Charlie Sheen's coming back in a week, but Charlie Sheen next week we got Jeff Ross, who's the roast master and a genius comedian. Paul Ben Victor, who's you know from The Wire, Entourage, and a million other things, was on last week. Uh, Jeff Garland from Curb is coming up, and uh, trying to think who else we got, but uh, you know it's it's been a lot of fun, and I think uh, it's just a kind of the same vibe as the show with less vulgarity for anyone who you know doesn't like the cursing. Now, how is Charlie doing? Tell him Marty Ray said hi. Charlie's doing unbelievable. We're talking about doing a new show together, and uh, he's great. great I don't really know him. I was just joking. (laughs) But uh, I'm glad to hear he's great. I'll tell him him anyway, I'm sure. Tell him anyway. (laughs) See what happens. Hey, Marty Ray says hi, Charlie. (laughs) Tell him he gives me $20 he owes me. (laughs) Tell him he owes me 20 bucks. All right, we end every episode with an unbelievable fact 
Doug, you ready? Sure. Yeah. I didn't, you didn't sound too sure, but you're getting <laughs> that, it anyway. That was I'm, nervous, I'm, nervous, I'm nervous about the fact. It's a fact well, about me or I got to come up with no, it? No, no, you ain't got to come up with it. I'm going to tell you an unbelievable fact. This, there's no right. stress involved here, Doug. I'm stressed. Right. I'm stressed out right now. This ain't HBO over here. The new All HBO, right. not the old one. You might think it's not true, but I assure you that it is. It's hard to believe it's an unbelievable fact. All right, vegetables Vegetables don't really exist. Did you know this? No. Even though the term has been used for years by cooks and chefs and everyone else, according to a botanist named Wolfgang Stupy, or Stuppy, however you say his name, both of them sound very... Stoop. Oh my! I'm so sorry. I think it's stupid. I'm so sorry, my friend. You probably know the guy. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Hipster. the The term vegetable doesn't e- exist in botanical terminology. That's what he says. So vegetables don't exist. Wow. I'm gonna have to stew on that for a bit. I'm not sure what it means, but <laughs> I like how you said stew. Is it vegetable stew? That's, uh, he's, he's a that was my that was my little wordplay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for saying that was funny, Doug. I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> yep, and yep. Uh, thank you for being on the show, buddy. I am actually honored to talk to you, and I'm glad that I met you in Clubhouse. And uh, I always yep. ask this at the end of every show. Could I adopt you as my cousin? Uh, do, you, do I get anything in your will? Like, what do I get out of it? You get a KFC candle. Man. Uh, yeah, sure. All right. Why right not? Why not? <laughs> That's all it took. We'll send the paperwork over. <laughs> all right, guys. All right, Thanks Doug. a lot. I pre- be well, guys. God bless Appreciate you. Appreciate it. All right, bye. Ah, thank you all so much for listening to the Marty Ray Project Chats. And a big thank you to Rode for supplying the sound with Rodecaster Pro. Whether you like what you heard or hated what you heard, subscribe and rate us anyway. Let us have it.